Last time yeah. we saw him, I don't know if you were there too. You were there. You were in Chicago, right? Yeah. When he was in when Chicago. When he was soused. He was soused and he had the cast on. Yeah. yeah. Okay. It was Moeller talking to Carl Franklin. Uh, right. So let's, I forgot that yeah. Carl Franklin was there for Noir City. Is yeah. that why they did those it movies? Was, okay. Yeah. It was Devil in a Blue Dress. Yeah. Uh, and then Carl Franklin was there and he was like, um, he was trying to make a point about race and Muller just made it in the most like graceless way, just fumbling, awkward, white dad way, boomer way, whatever. Like, cause he was like, yeah. you know, and you know, people think that, you know, all these old movies, you know, and all this stuff, it just belongs to whites. And that's, that's not true. You know, uh, I do a lot of North city and you know, you'd be surprised. Uh, so many of the people that come up to me and love these movies are are old black ladies, you know? That's right. Oh, my <laughs> God. Like, that, that it was time. like, yep. I've got black friends, what he was basically like saying to Carl yeah, Franklin. It's all flooding back to friends. me. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, and no. Carl Franklin was like, yeah, I, my grandma watched all those movies, you know? Like, <laughs> The policeman isn't there to create disorder. The policeman is there to preserve disorder. Gentlemen, get the thing straight once and for all. We clear the streets along this route, deploy our men, and create an impassable barrier. A gauntlet, if you will. He won't have a chance. I challenge you to a duel. Well, I'll tell you the truth, this guy's starting to get on my nerves. <laughs> you want to crown them? Then crown them in. But they are who we thought they were. And we let them on the hot. That's hot out there. Let's, we don't walk out there. Very, very, very hot. Open fire! Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Gauntlet. My name is Ryan Saunders, and I'm joined here with, as always, Eric Marsh and Andrew Stasulis. The Gauntlet is a weekly double feature podcast in which one of us is tasked with selecting a theme for the week, and the other two hosts have to program films that meet that theme, and we collide these films together and sort of see what's going on in response to, to the theme itself. So it was it was me this week to select the theme, and it was partially inspired by an exciting bit of um, repertory cinema that was making its way to my neck of the woods, and that is Noir City with Eddie Muller himself in person. And uh, I have many fond memories of heading to Noir City on rainy Chicago nights, and it was nice driving up to Seattle on a rainy night to, to also then see Eddie Muller in, in a different setting. But it's been a very fun festival so far. Closing night is tomorrow. I will be going back to check out the the final films. And yeah, it's been an interesting assortment of films. And so thinking about Noir City, I thought, well, we'll lean a little heavily into that theme and mix it up a little bit. And I was thinking, as I'm heading to the city, both of you could get me out of the city and we could head out to the country and take a look at country noir or rural noir. And funny enough, one of the films that was presented in this series is the film Marsh ended up selecting. It was very lucky that in Noir City, we happen to have a noir country film. Uh, so Marsh, you could talk about that first. Why don't we see what, what'd you bring? Yeah, well, you, you know, were like, why don't you pick some, see if see if anything that's playing uh, fits the theme. And I was happy to, to oblige. And in fact, I had thought I had seen this film before, uh, but it turns out I was confusing it with another noir from uh, one year later called Red Lights by Roy Del Ruth with George Raft. But that's not what this film is. Uh, so I selected 
Roadhouse from 1948. The film was directed by Romanian emigre Jean Negulesco, and it is a 20th century Fox noir about a roadhouse near the Canadian border in this small town. And the roadhouse itself is owned by Jeff D. Robbins, played by Richard Widmark, and the day-to-day operations are run by his childhood best friend, Pete Morgan, played by Cornell Wilde. But the plot and the movie itself really begins when a new singer comes to town to perform in the Roadhouse. And as the film opens, we are introduced immediately to the bare feet and legs <laughs> yes, we are. of Lily Stevens, as played by Ida Lupino. And she is a nightclub singer from Chicago who has come to the Roadhouse on a six-week contract after Jeffy saw her in the big city and whisked her away to the country. And from there, what develops is uh, a twisted love triangle between these three characters and maybe even a love quadrangle, as we will discuss later. The film has a, an interesting conception in that it was basically initiated by Ida Lupino herself, who in the 1940s was becoming increasingly dissatisfied with her career as an actress in the Hollywood system. She was highly critical uh, of the day-to-day operations of the big studios in those days, and in fact, this led to her rejecting multiple seven-year contracts from Paramount and Warner Brothers because she preferred to be an independent and because she had aspirations to write, direct, and produce, uh, which she ultimately would do the following year when she formed The Filmmakers. But this is one year before that, and so she bought the uh, story from some writers and she brought it to Fox and sold it to Fox and sold herself as the star of the film and had a hand in the you know, shaping of the script and the performances as well. So uh, not to discredit my man Negalesco, who does really great work here, but Ida really, you know, started this project and I think she's very much at the center of it, uh, as we will discuss. So yeah, it's a, you know, it's a late 40s noir. It's uh, twisted, it's violent, it's erotic. It's, uh, It's a good time. It is certainly a good time. Uh, I had a blast seeing this projected on 35mm in, in the cinema. It was very cozy and, and wonderful to see it, and it was uh, quite stunning to see those feet uh, right there at the, <laughs> at the beginning of the film. Got a good laugh out of the audience. Um, I, I didn't have the luck to have uh, Eddie Moeller introduce this film, but the two people who did introduce it talked a lot about what you said, Marsh, about how lots of actor as auteur type talk with Ida. I think that's mm-hmm. really key for, for this film, because she even had a hand in who was cast in the film. She was the one who got Richard Winmark involved. But we'll, we'll talk about that a little later. Though I did really briefly, thinking about Eddie Moeller and his introduction, want to share a little anecdote from The weekend, where for the film Shakedown, when Eddie Moeller was giving his introduction, he kept saying he was so jazzed that we were all here. He was almost cheering up just the fact that there was a full house, you know, 
know, here for this for this film. And he was so excited. He's like, I, f- I feel like now tonight's is a great opportunity for this little no- noir to have like a very willing crowd enjoy it. He says, I've I've had bad luck with this film in the past. And he had originally tried to show it or around the year, the either the late 90s or in the year 2000. And he said he had so many people there. Joe Dante was there. Spielberg was there. Sort of grew up on noirs. It's sort of from a certain generation. And they were so thrilled. And when the film finally began, because he had promised everyone, like, you can't see this film anywhere. Uh, it ended up being the wrong print. It was the shakedown. Uh, totally different film. And then he said, the second time I tried to show shakedown to an audience, uh, it was the correct print, but it happened to be September 11th, 2001. <laughs> 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 so it didn't did work out in his favor. Right print, wrong day. <laughs> yeah, right print, wrong day. I was the only guy in the audience that just like exploded with laughter when he <laughs> said that. Um, and I think it was intended to be a, a bit of comedy on his part, a bit of dark yeah, comedy. Well, gallows um, humor. That's the noir alleyway. <laughs> Never forget the day Eddie Muller tried to show Shakedown and, uh, you know. <laughs> yeah, a bit of a sour atmosphere in the crowd we were very willing um but yeah you know i wish eddie moeller had an introduction for the film you selected andy i feel like uh, moeller introduction always enhances the the film experience so i like to imagine him you know after the fact having given me a little talk about it but i'll, I'll instead defer to you tell me a little bit about what what you picked oh wow that's a tough that's a tough uh you know act to follow right you know <laughs> Imagining Eddie Muller doing a better job at what I'm about to do, you know, way to, way to set me up to fail. Um, I had an inkling that Marsh would go classic noir route because he is, you know, next to Muller, uh, one of my go-to guys for, for you know, recommending noir and particularly, yeah. you know, classic Hollywood noir. So so I, I had a feeling Marsh was going to go towards his wheelhouse. So I, I figured I, I wanted to go contemporary. I wanted to try to go, you know, outside the U.S. Um, and and really kind of stretch, stretch the prompt, you know, country noir and let's go to a different country. Uh, so I, I kicked uh, around a few ideas and, of course, uh, bounced some off of you and had to get uh, a better definition of what you guys consider uh, a city, and uh, was was of course quite quite you know embarrassed when I when I did ask if you would <laughs> consider Cairo, Egypt, a, a city, and you both smacked me with like the Wikipedia you know entry that says it's like the most populous city in like the Middle East or whatever you know. And it's okay, all right, all right, all right. I get it, I get it, I get it. You know. <laughs> So, so, uh, you know, after that, you know, after I, I learned, uh, how big a city Cairo is, um, I decided, you know, to, to, to go back to the drawing board and, and, uh, it it struck me that years ago I had seen this sort of like oddball, like neo-noir film from, from Denmark. And I, I actually had forgotten the title. I'd forgotten you know, everything sort of, you know, that you would need to track it down. And I spent hours trying to to find my way back to the film that I selected and and was was fortunate enough that I was. So I selected a film from 2008 from the Danish director Henrik Ruben Gens. I think that's how you pronounce his name, I hope. Um, but that is a, a 2008 film called 
terribly happy. I'm not even going to attempt the Danish, uh, the actual Danish title. I was going to say, yeah, you do, you don't remember that the film was called uh, Free Teleg Lekeleg? <laughs> <laughs> no, I didn't remember that. I knew it was something like that. But um, Terribly Happy is this sort of oddball fusion of Nordic deadpan black comedy with with shades of, of neo-noir and also, some say, a little bit of a, a Western bent to it as well. So, so it's this really interesting kind of fusion of a lot of different things, this, this hybrid of a lot of different genres. Uh, Terribly Happy is the story of a disgraced cop named Robert. Uh, and Robert is, is part of the, the, you know, the Danish police, and he's, he's stationed, we learn, originally in Copenhagen, in Copenhagen, Denmark. And as the film opens, he's being driven out to the middle of nowhere, to a city that I believe is pronounced Skrild. Uh, <laughs> so uh, the middle of nowhere in, in Denmark, in like the bog country, you know, the lowlands, the, 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 the Jutland area of Denmark. And he's being taken out there by a superior officer who, through a bit of exposition, kind of hints at the idea that this new posting for Robert the cop is punishment or part of his rehabilitation, that, that there's a, a, a dark event in his recent past that led to him basically having a, a violent nervous breakdown. And so he's being sent out to this, this podunk, one-horse town in the middle of nowhere in Denmark to cool his heels, to, to maybe get a little per perspective on things. And if it all goes well, after a brief period of time, then he will be able to go back to Copenhagen, back to the big city. But in order to do that, he's got to first survive this town where nothing really happens. He somehow also gets embroiled in a love triangle of sorts as he is introduced to Ingelise, a woman who emerges in a very kind of classic femme fatale way. She sort of enters his office, this, this blonde in a, in a leather raincoat. And he discovers uh, in the, the small town, you know, gossip and politics that, that Ingelise has problems with her husband, Jorgen, and that Jorgen and her are constantly beating the shit out of each other. But of course, things aren't always as clear as they seem in Noir City, right? So, uh, from there, you know, there's a lot of twists and turns. There's intrigue, there's murder, there's secrets. To me, all the hallmarks of a great Noir film. So that's terribly happy. Thank you. Thank you. It's funny that you mentioned that in trying to uh, select this film, you were sort of searching through your brain because you had images of it, but couldn't remember specifically what it was called. And to me, my experience with the film, it, it really did closely resemble, I feel like, a lot of the films I was watching in 2008, sort of around the time where it was either we were renting films from Blockbuster's DVD service or just like the early days of the Netflix streaming platform. This was the type of film I feel was like flooding the platforms at that time, watching tons of 
rather entertaining kind of crime films from all these different European countries. Yeah. I feel like, you know, what they had like film movement or something sort of attached on, onto mm-hmm. the front of it, you know? That's where I first saw it. I, I, d- I definitely vividly remember first seeing it on Netflix around that time. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so many of those films, I feel like I, I have impressions of them. There are images of them in my brain, but the actual, like, yeah, the titles, what they were about, where they came from, that is sort of like disappeared um, in the recesses of my mind. But yeah, so I guess, you know, one way to, to sort of jump into both of these films, uh, you know, you did bring up the fact that it it does have like a bit of a love triangle, and that is something that these films, you know, really do have in common. But I, I feel like we, we can't ignore the sort of the elephant in the room that we have to just talk about right away with Roadhouse and that's when I was sitting in the in the audience and the film began and it was just so serendipitous once the credits started and I look over to Molly and I said like oh my god this is a bowling movie and I knew Marsh you hadn't seen the film and then so you had selected it after I had suggested like oh look at the lineup see you know see what we got and it was just yeah it was a beautiful moment and I was I felt close at home like thinking about Marsh you in the theater just like losing your mind at that title sequence uh and maybe we could just start talking about that because it's so delicious (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's it's true uh I was absolutely Absolutely delighted with the opening credits montage as we get dolly shots of the lanes, right? Because the roadhouse is not just a bar with, you know, a nightclub singer. It's also, yeah, a full bowling alley and arcade. Uh, And it's a pretty serious operation they got going. And yeah, bowling is a central part of the film, uh, especially as it relates to the uh, Ida Lupino, uh, Cornell Wilde uh, sort of development of their relationship is over the course of several horny bowling scenes. <laughs> and uh, I loved it. And just like I, I tweeted about this because I was so excited, but this film does my favorite thing that any film can do when featuring bowling, which is the Bazanian realism of a real famous actor bowling and getting oh, yeah. a strike, right? Uh, because when they're bowling in this film, it's Ida Lupino and Cornell Wilde bowling. They're not cheating. They're not cutting. They're throwing those balls down the lane, and we're seeing the result in real time. Mm-hmm. And I always appreciate that. Yeah. I also loved in that opening montage the sort of like almost, you know, archaeological aspect of seeing humans as the pin setters uh they had like a whole fleet of guys uh resetting the pins after after you know every every ball thrown and it was like it it just occurred to me it was like oh my god like yeah that would have been a fucking full-time job back then for some guy you know is is setting the pins by hand after someone threw a ball that was mike royko's job as a teenager he He was was a chicago pin setter yeah Wow. <laughs> and also a bit of a risky job, as evidenced by the film, and in, in, in certain moments where if a gutter ball comes, you know, shooting down the lane, the, that yeah. pin setter was a, a bit at risk. But yeah, it really does go into a lot of detail showing the intricacies of how the bowling alley is designed and maintained. Uh, that labor is very, like, beautifully presented in in that title sequence. Do you, do you seriously, though? You had no idea about the bowling aspect when no. you picked the movie? No. That's amazing. I, I would have figured. I was I was just like, 
You knew it was a bowling thing. You no, because, yeah, I told him to look at the list, and then we saw, like, oh, this one's set just, like, on the U.S.-Canada border, and it's in a roadhouse. This 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 counts. And we oh sort of God. just left it at that. Um, That's too funny. And then, yeah, hey, you had already addressed it, but after that title sequence, we have, like... <laughs> An incredible opening image for a film from 1948, just especially thinking about Ida in terms of like actor as auteur and her own control over this production. She's firmly putting her foot down, you could say, uh, by presenting us right away with there's there's her foot. It's like a loving close up of her at the desk. And just the way Cornell Wilde looks at her feet uh, when he's talking to her in that office Um Oh God, it's so funny. Yeah, and that's also when they begin a series of, uh, uh, you know, like dialogue lines where they refer to her and other women as equipment, like bowling alley equipment. But yeah, it's a it's a very charged opening, and it's also a bit of sleight of hand because. You may expect in a film noir, especially from the classic era, to have a femme fatale. And it presents her as, yeah, you know, she's from the city, she's cynical, she's extremely attractive, and as we find out, she's very talented. But she's not a femme fatale. She's more, you know, the the main character of the film. Uh, and in fact, we have the, the classic inversion, the la homme fatale. <laughs> 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 Fatal. Fatal. <laughs> I love it. Yes. Yes. Yeah, she's from Chicago. Another nice little touch. <laughs> Absolutely. And so, yeah, the, the dangerous presence, of course, in the film is uh, Richard Widmark in his third film appearance. Uh, and that, that should be obvious to anyone uh, who knows who Richard Widmark is. Uh, he's going to be coming hard in this film uh, throughout yeah. the course of it. I kept thinking if you remade the film, you would have to cast Walton Goggins in his role because <laughs> yeah. he's the only one I could think of that could match that energy. I mean, there are times where Richard Woodmark feels like he's barking like a dog. Yeah. Uh, he's so he's like Bobo, actually, sitting there on the couch. It's true. <laughs> he is he's growling. I wrote, like, growl in my notes like several times. Mm -hmm. Yeah. He, he seems to, like, descend, like, further and further into, like, psych psychopathic immaturity. To me, it was like watching him regress throughout the film because yeah. at first you don't really get the hint. You know, he seems very boyish and charming and excited about getting this new singer and I got the bowling alley. Everything is going for me in life. Things are great. But his performance, like as the film progresses and and the 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 facial expressions, the cackling laughter, like he did just by the end seem like just a big psychopathic baby, like with a gun. Yeah, yeah, great performances all around, but he he really struck me. Um, and he was uh, it, it mentioned in the introduction for the film. It was Ida had personally requested him. the The role was cast with someone else whose name escapes me, but she had she had seen Richard Woodmark in Kiss of Death and said that like that is the guy. He has to be in this film. Yeah, if he can throw a grandmother down the stairs, he can uh, he can do anything. <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, I want to talk about one thing that immediately struck me about this movie. 
the production design uh, is incredible. And it's the, the whole roadhouse is full of, you know, like hunting trophies and antlers and bowling mm-hmm. trophies and ashtrays. Like, it's this very, like, you know, designed space that's constantly being foregrounded with these elements. So it is this very, like, foreboding space, obviously, because these animals on the wall are like a threatening presence, you know? And it's like early on in the film even where I believe, you know, Ida Lupino's like, oh, am I going to get caught in this like bear trap of a place? You know, it's even referred to yeah. as this, yeah, there's, there's like dark energy in this roadhouse. And what they do with the mise-en-scene, I think, is like really impressive throughout. Because uh, there's also, yeah, a living space upstairs where Pete... Uh, lives and manages the business, right? Yeah, it's remarkably expansive in that way. I feel like typically, you know, especially in a noir city film, right? The the bars or these places, they they feel almost suffocating sometimes or claustrophobic, um, and that darkness can feel like oppressive and tight. And here, the roadhouse itself feels huge, and it's constantly there's all these new spaces being revealed. As you said, there are living quarters here, and even when the film tries to narrow in on particular spaces like whenever there is a musical performance there is the reminder that there's an entire bowling alley hidden behind uh some of these doors honestly i also was was like this this fucking place rules like yeah. if a place like yeah. this actually existed it's like, unbelievable i feel like we'd be hanging out there all the time i want to live there. yeah we should start our own <laughs> i mean it's like it's it's like hunting lodge slash lounge singer dive bar slash fucking bowling alley. Like if you, uh, if you design a space like this in a city today that like, I mean, my goodness, you'd get some very, very good business there. You know? Yeah. I mean, outside of that one brawl that really disrupts everything, all the patrons seem to be having just an absolute great time at yeah. the roadhouse. You know, both, uh, you know, Richard Wid- Widmark, Jeff D, both Jeff D and, and Cornell Wild Pete, they they take a lot of pride in it as well. Like they are they're so into running this great space, and that seems to be, you know, the the essence of their friendship as well. Is sort of, and we've got this great place, and we're running it well, and everything's going well, and now we've got this great singer that's arriving, and 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 Jeffy is of course so jazzed up because he has grand designs even to make it bigger to build upon his success to expand even further yeah because those are really the stakes for the beginning of the film is whether ida lupino will live up to jeff d's expectations about being a great nightclub performer because there is so much stock placed on how well the roadhouse has been doing but then marsh you know you talking about the bazinian realism of the bowling here then when we finally get the musical performances from Ida Lupino where she has to prove herself, she does her own singing in the Mm -hmm. film. And they're really remarkable musical performances. She's got a very unique voice. It's almost like spoken word jazz that she does. She's kind of talk singing. It's quarter to three. There's no one in the place except you and me. So set him up, Joe. I've got a little story you ought to know. We're drinking, my friend, to the end. 
of a brief episode Make it one for my baby And one more for the road It's like bluesy, sultry, smoker's voice, like raspy shit. I mean, and it, you know, it hints at her her backstory, right, as this lifelong lived as an entertainer. Uh, and, And that is, you know, again, to read into it, Lupino herself was a child actor born into a family of actors, and she was at work at a very young age. She came to Hollywood when she was 15. And so this feeling of being trapped and all these people looking at her and how, of course, the emotion like changes and reflects the plot, you know? Because she does do, I think, four musical numbers. So you could qualify this as the, you know, the the niche musical noir as well. <laughs> uh, sure. That is a lot of musical numbers. And yeah, she's actually singing and insisted that she do so. So uh, it definitely brings like a real element uh, to it. And I love that when she performs that first number, uh, some random guy in the crowd goes, uh, she reminds me of the first woman to ever slap my face. (laughs) (laughs) And there's all kinds of, you know, like any like classic film noir, a lot of like really good wise cracks uh, in this movie. But I think Mm -hmm. too, like we should introduce also like the small town element to all of this that Andy Mm -hmm. was alluding to, which is Jeff D owns the roadhouse. And we discover that he inherited it from his father and that him and Pete were, you know, child pin setters and best friends. And they went off to world war two and came back and they're living their dream of running the roadhouse. However, there's a bit of a hierarchy, right? And it, it starts of course, and ends with, Richard Widmark as Jeff D, who very quickly reveals himself to be very possessive and very immature and a uh, tyrant in a small town, right? He's basically the richest guy. And so he wields an enormous amount of power and influence over the events and occurrences of the town. Uh, And that's such a huge element of this, you know? And it's like in such contrast to the urban noir where there's like all these heavies around every corner. There's tough guys, there's mobsters, there's competing mobs. And here it's like one man is just the small town king. Yeah. Uh, I saw the sign, you know, when Ida Lupino arrives and they like pass by, you know, the bus station or wherever she gets off the train station. And the, the, the name of the town is revealed on the sign and it says Elton pop. 270. I was like, 270 people in this whole place, you know? And like, yes, a guy like him would be amongst 270 people. I mean, half of them are at the roadhouse every night, too. Right. That number. As it develops, she becomes a sensation at the roadhouse. She's quite the attraction. And all the meanwhile, right, Jefty is <laughs> aggressively making moves on her because he thinks, because he hired her, 
she should also be his girlfriend, Mm -hmm. right? In a typical, you know, shitty, toxic man owner move. And she is not having any of this and rebuffs all of his advances. And she also has a contentious relationship with Pete at first, but as mentioned, it softens over the course of a, a couple bowling scenes as they get to know each other a little better and start to to sort of fall in love. It's not even five minutes into the movie when Pete is assigned the task of like taking her to her hotel and uh, he says something that she doesn't really like. And she hauls off and slaps him oh, like yeah. super hard, which makes that other line that the guy says like funny because yeah. she does yeah. like deck Pete pretty good. And again, talk about Bazan or whatever, like <laughs> she hauls off and smacks him and Cornell takes it on the chin. And and yes, it seems at first that they are, you know, water and oil that, that Pete doesn't really care for her, sees her perhaps as this sort of spoiled big city showgirl. Uh, and he is the sort of, you know, hardworking country guy, you know, out in the middle of nowhere, a worker, a, a, a blue collar guy, right? And And at first, as you point out, he doesn't want to give her bowling lessons, you no, know. He does not. And and I also it struck me that that he he didn't like her because he feels this is a bowling alley first. Like he cares about yeah. the bowling. <laughs> yeah. And then when she's there, there's like this shot of him, you know, kind of getting annoyed, and and the lanes are all empty because everybody's in watching her perform, and he like grabs a ball and just starts bowling. And I was thinking he's like. You know, what about the bowling? Are we a bar or are we a bowling alley? You know, <laughs> I bought into this because I thought it was about bowling. And here right. you are, you know, making this into some sort of lounge singer thing, you know? Yeah. Because well, he, he doesn't want to give her uh, bowling lessons. He's sort of ordered to yeah. by by uh, by Jeffy. And Jeffy gets like almost violent when he is like, no, I'm not. I don't want to give her lessons. He like grabs him. And that's the first hint at Jeffy's uh, violent capabilities. But he does say that Pete is, quote, the best bowler in the state. So I think there's something to that. Because, uh, yeah, he goes and throws like a frustrated uh, hard ball right down the middle of the lane. And even, you know, what? As a bowler, I was cracking up during their scenes because he throws out some, like, pretty good lingo. Uh, He's like, all right, I'm going to teach you a backup ball. And he's like, going to hit it on the Brooklyn side. He's, like, saying, like, real bowling shit. And, of course, like, the 40s, I think, was, like, the heyday of, you know, gambling and bowling and, like, New York City shit, you know? Yeah, I had a feeling that bowling lingo was true, and I love how dismissive he is um, while teaching her bowling. It's a great power play, that entire sequence, where he's introducing a new bowling concept, then does a representation of it, and when it's Ida Lupino's turn to give it a shot she of course is just being thrown with the ball as she's throwing and almost being dragged down the lane she's tossed she's tossing the ball it's ending up in another lane it's bouncing around always ending up in the gutter and the way she spins that around on him is i'm gonna give it another shot but this time you have to grab me so i don't go with the ball she does she goes for the roll and he has to grab her waist and sort of hold on to her um and it's that first physical contact that you feel it's like the yeah these scenes become so charged and 
immediately in that very classic Hollywood way. Yeah, he's holding his ball in the foreground as she's sitting like below him. It's so like, you know, I got to ask, I got to ask as well, because, you know, uh, for for the listeners who don't know, Marsh, uh, your your, you know, beloved Marsh is quite the bowler himself. So, you know, from a man that I've always known to be uh, a very excellent bowler, how do you rate Cornell Wilde's form? You know, because he's doing quite a bit of bowling. And yeah. I wanted to get your take on it as a bowler. Well, for for an old timer, you know, I'd give him I'd give him six, seven out of ten. You know, it's competent. It's good. He's hitting the pocket. But, you know, he doesn't really have a hook. He says at one point he's going to throw a hook. But like he doesn't really throw a hook. And look, there, mm. there weren't a lot of guys throwing a hook in the 1940s. So I got to give him some of that historical leniency. But I would say, yeah, you know. Not bad. Have you ever drank water out of a little paper bag like they do at the bowling alley in this movie? <laughs> I, that, did, no. that did occur to me as well yeah. as, a, as a very interesting mark of a, of a bygone time. The, the disposable paper bags next to the water cooler. There's yeah. a really good alcoholic joke as well in the bowling sequence when Susie, played by Celeste Holmes, says uh, to Pete, Straight water so early in the day. <laughs> yeah. God, it's it's nonstop zingers from everybody in this movie. It is unbelievable because I think she's the same one too when after Ida's first musical performance they ask her what she thought of it and she says, Yeah, it sounds good if you like listening to the sound of gravel. It's like mm-hmm. ooh shit. Yeah, but my problem is I've always found the sound of crunching gravel to be a little pleasant. So, you know. Yeah, I do too. Again, I had to sort of put two and two together that it was meant to be a a negative uh, connotation. But I I, I did pick up on something else in that bowling uh, scene. Um, You know, when they're they're learning, there is also the discussion of being a straight bowler and throwing the ball straight. So, you know, of course, in the modern... Uh, era of bowling we know it's all about the hook it's all about you know mm-hmm. being a sort Revs. of yeah yeah a bent bowler you know but but i mean i couldn't help but think we're watching noir and this is a type of cinema where there's a lot of emphasis on being crooked and crooked angles and and he's trying to establish her you know with her the idea of being straight and playing it straight the straight mm-hmm. shooter the straight shooter as well yeah Absolutely. Speaking of, of straight shooting, uh, the the love affair really kicks off when Jefty uh, goes on a hunting trip and he's going to be gone. And so Pete and Lily get to know each other a little better. And they do this by uh, going swimming and going out on the lake. And this is where we get, yeah, those like idol sequences of these two, you know, beautiful people just in the country on Jeffy's boat. Again, you want to talk about horny. Yeah. That swimming sequence was was extremely uh, horny to me <laughs> because it also introduces something you alluded to, yes. which is that it might not necessarily just be a love triangle, but also a love quadrangle. Yeah, what is going on with Susie because... I honestly feel like one of the gr- the great things about this movie is like as it went along, I just kept thinking more and more about Susie. Mm-hmm. And by the end, I'm just like, I felt so fucking bad for her. So like, I think it's implied that her and Pete 
had or have a thing. But I think it's also implied that maybe her and Jefty had or have a thing. She's the cashier at the roadhouse. She's, you know, as important to the day-to-day operations as Pete is. And there's a lot sort of like buried under the surface here, especially in Celeste Holmes' performance, which is really, really good. And that swimming trip is is great because... Yes, you really do see both Pete and Susie trying to fuck with her a bit, you know, because she comes on very, very hard to Pete about, you know, we're going to have a day together and we're going to spend time together. And when she comes down from her hotel, that's when she discovers Susie in the Jeep as well. And, you know, it's like, oh, great. okay, you're bringing a buffer. You know, you're bringing somebody to to make sure that there's no funny business between us. And that's that's really it. And then also, yes, uh, when they get there, Lily hasn't brought a bathing suit. And she's like, I don't like swimming. I don't want to get all wet. Yeah. <laughs> City slicker shit. Yeah, but it's, yeah. it's a great scene of like, you know, of attraction and power dynamics and, and eroticism because, you know, they get to the beach and... Pete and Susie are just quickly in the water, splashing around, having a good time. And they're they're flirting, you know, he's dunking her and she's climbing all over him. <laughs> and Lily's just seething. Playing solitaire Playing alone solitaire. for like <laughs> yeah. the fourth time in the movie up to this point. Yeah. Oh, it's an incredible shot because it's like an overhead shot with Lily in the foreground, like in the bottom right, playing solitaire. And then like, yeah, in the background is just splish splash, having a joyous time, like supercharged. Um, and yeah, you can feel her bubbling up. Lily's getting ready to make her grand entrance. Oh, yeah. And she sure does, because she she disappears into the bushes and comes back out in a very, very revealing sort of improvised uh, swimming attire. Very risque. She is showing a lot of skin in that moment. It's a very contemporary bathing suit. Oh, yeah. <laughs> to give the viewers an idea. Yeah. Um, and yeah, and she she dives right in and then does like a flip in the water in between the two of them. She has, <laughs> she has like commanded her ground there in the water. She's she She's in charge of these waters now. Mm-hmm. Yep. And right after that scene, we get the John Ford Roadhouse brawl. Oh, yeah. As Lily performs her third song of the film. And while she's doing so, there's a very large plaid clad lumberjack man lurking in the background. And, and he starts to sort of creep on her. And by the time she finishes the song, he's... Uh, you know, smashed the head of another patron. And this escalates to, yeah, this this one man uh, fighting the entire bar. He's like a tornado. Yeah, he's like destroying the place. He is wrecking it up. He's smashing windows, breaking tables, wrecking the bar, breaking bottles. It is it is, yes, a, a quite a quite a display of brawn in that moment. And also, you know, breakable uh, Hollywood bar furniture. Yeah. And <laughs> yeah. some good wrestling moves in there too as Cornell Wilde throws himself into the fray. I mean, Jeffy's out of town. What's going on? Who's going to break up the fight? And Pete saves the day and and yeah, there's lots of uh you know, wrestling going on for a, for a minute there. Uh, and then the, yeah, the cops, uh, you know, show up and sort of calm everything down. And it's, it's through this moment, through the fight that, that I think their relationship now 
goes into the next level, yeah. goes into the next phase, as they're sort of both licking their wounds together and bonding over this this like violent traumatic experience, you know. She's sort of like icing her ankle, which is like an odd place to like imagine the injury, but it's, you know, again, I think just another excuse to to get everybody horny over Ida. Yeah. yeah. Well, she really holds her own in that brawl too, and she did do her own stunts, uh, I learned, um, for oh. this film. And yeah, I mean Cornell is the one that does like borderline martial arts um with he's that a veteran. hulking man. Yeah, he's his fighting is really incredible. Um, and it's funny, the film goes to so much lengths to make you think about how much money the Roadhouse is making, like how they're going to do if Ida's performances like aren't bringing in the crowds. And when he is tearing up that bar, like all I could think about was how expensive that was all yeah. going to be. Because oh, yeah. he destroys like nearly the entire room, you know, mm. a lot I mean, of glass. I'm, I'm, yeah. yeah, lots of glass. I'm glad he didn't get his way into the, the bowling alley. You would have hated to see that get all torn up, too. Oh. <laughs> And thinking about the damage that's done to that bar, that scene does begin with a very nice little signifier of time passing by showing the very mild damage that Ida Lupino has been doing to the piano by leaving her lit cigarettes on the edge of the wood. And you see the burn marks from all like, you know, her multiple performances over the months. Dude, I love Um, that. I love that touch. Like just mm -hmm. a small little touch, but just like such a caring note of like production design and and art direction, you know, to have those, those burns on the piano. Yeah. I think the entire film is full of things like that. And even you, Andy, talking about her addressing the bruised ankle she has and that foot shot, it's just every image in the film is full of these details that seem to signify something in the way that everything is related to each other, whether that's the passage of time, whether that's power dynamics, whether that's love and like hidden desires amongst everyone through bowling. Um, it's a very carefully arranged and shot film. Mm-hmm. When I, when I think of like uh, noir uh, for me often, like I think of, of that, I think of mise-en-scene. I think of mm-hmm. an attention to that kind of thing, an attention to, to blocking. And, you know, you already pointed this out with the, the discussion of, you know, the water ballet that takes place in the lake of her, you know, swimming in and, and swimming in between the two of them, you know. Lily getting in between Susie and Pete. And, man, there is just so much of that, so many uh, interesting aspects of of geometry in terms of character position throughout the film. Like, it's, yeah. it's such a, on a certain level, like a lost art. Following this, there is the return of Jefty. Oh, yeah. And Jefty, of course, you know, beelines it to to uh to lily's hotel you know he wants to go and and see his girl but she's not there she's looking at the stars with pete exchanging backstories in a little uh, quick exposition dump (laughs) and there's the great moment you know following the the exposition dump where you know jeffy is of course where the he's looking all over for her and and Susie, you know catches on to the fact that oh you know pete's Pete's with Lily. This could be bad, you know? And she does a little bit of like interference, trying to sort of like oh, yeah. occupy Jeffy as he's looking around. And like deep in the background, Pete rolls up in his Jeep, like way in the background of this shot, 
with Lily and Susie's trying to like keep Jeff deoccupied as, as Lily's like getting out of Pete's Jeep and like walking into the hotel. And again, just like great blocking, great use of space. And Jeff D comes back with the <laughs> most unappealing proposal I think I've ever seen in a film. And one that very, very much resembles like the most extreme version of an American businessman proposing yeah. to his uh, his spouse oh God, um, and yeah. he just simply returns with the documents for her to sign he calls her up and says i have got the marriage certificate here with me like all you need to do is fill this out uh and we're set and yeah it's this like grotesque confidence he has arriving back with that but to me i thought it was like a biting way of presenting like oh here's this like man who's looking for every opportunity he can get taking advantage of everyone and only thinking them of them in terms of transactional relationships you know here's she's bringing all of this to my bar that i own so we can make money here i think i can hold on to this relationship here are the papers like fill this out for me ma'am well ryan this film was written by edward chodorov who shortly after the making of this film uh, would be named as a communist to HUAC and blacklisted. So uh, I think you're right. And I think a lot of the elements of the class and and how the social sort of strata works in this film uh, comes from, yes, the the communist screenwriter. of this. Hollywood pico. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You know, we kind of glossed over it as well when you mentioned like the, the moment when Pete and Lily really start to connect gazing at the stars and we get their their backstories and stuff and I I I love the 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 dream that Pete has oh yeah uh, it seemed to me that like his ultimate dream you know is to is to get out of here he wants to head up Portland way and get a fishing boat and a bowling alley wasn't it like his yeah. dream he wanted yeah. to own a fishing boat and a bowling alley and just like live in fucking Portland like man <laughs> the original hipster dude right I mean like doesn't that sound great Wearing his Abercrombie, his like original Abercrombie and Fitch, like Dude. sick outfits. Yeah. You know what's funny about that? My uncle used to talk to me about Abercrombie. You know, when we were in like high school and it was like, you know, it was where the, yeah. the cool kids shopped, you know, and the preps and the and all that shit. And my uncle would always lament, you know, he'd be like, What the hell happened to Abercrombie and Fitch? You know, back in my day, I bought a 38 revolver from Abercrombie and Fitch. It was a hunting supply store. <laughs> yeah, hell yeah, dude. Uh, yeah, this film is like all outfitted in in Abercrombie and Fitch. Yeah, it's it's awesome. But yeah, back when they were yeah, a hunt, like revolvers a hunt, yeah, and hunting rifles. Yeah, probably yeah the 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 guns we see in this very film perhaps you know and to your to your point andy that scene is much more than just an exposition dump i mean there's there's a moment in there that i you know highlighted in my notes where lily is is like terrified uh, of the potential for violence within Jeff D and, and everyone around Jeff D is like always playing down his bad behavior. Right. And like, obviously something we're all more than intimately familiar with in the last decade or so. And it's like, Pete is just like, he's just a spoiled guy. And she's like, uh, I think he's like capable of murder, you know, <laughs> like, yeah. and, and that discrepancy, like Pete is blinded by his friendship and his history with Jeff D to where it's that classic thing. It's like, oh, he's just a spoiled rich kid. Like, don't worry about it. It's nothing. But like, no, it really 
fucking is something. Yeah. There's like a brief glimpse into what Jeff D maybe used to be like, because I agree, he's he's a character that's portrayed at this point in his life as someone completely lacking all warmth and empathy and is someone who seems on the edge. But there's a line in the film when he's confronted about you know, his love for Lily and why he's so stuck on this and holding on to it and why he can't shake it and won't let it go. What made you do it, Jeff? I don't know. You love her? Yeah, all I know is she makes me think about things I used to laugh at. Um, which is one of the most just beautiful things I've ever heard in a classic Hollywood film, which is saying a lot because these are films that are typically full of such expressive lines as those. But I felt like my heart was in my throat when I heard that in the theater and seeing it projected, I was just like, dear God. Like, yeah, and such a tender, like understated like performance from him in that moment. Yeah, he, he's kind of at that point being set up as, as almost... A, a tragic figure, you know, but again, my first time seeing the film, I had no idea what was in store. I had no idea the, the, the tragic comic turn that, that, that uh, was in store for, for Jeff D and Pete. Yeah. So Pete confronts Jeff D and discloses his secret relationship with Lily. Again, you know, Pete say what you want. He's a straight bowler. He's, yeah, straight bowler all and he just the way to the end. Goes right at it. You know, Absolutely. I don't want to have secrets with my friend. I want to go man to man and tell him what's happening. Yeah, and he does. And and Jeff D does not take it well. <laughs> uh, and, and sensing this, Pete and Lily prepare to run away together, and they're at the train station when out of nowhere, the cops show up, and then the film veers into courtroom uh, thriller territory for a brief stretch <laughs> as uh, essentially, you know, not to overcomplicate things, but uh, Jeffy sensing, knowing that they're going to run away, concocts a scheme to bound them to him uh, forever, or at least for the foreseeable future. Yeah, because Pete takes out his his like back pay, you know, he goes to the the safe at the at the bar and leaves a note for Jeffy, like, "Hey, I took what's owed me, right? I, that's all I took." He takes, I think, six hundred dollars, and yeah. says, "I'm taking what's owed me, and I'm leaving." And again, that scene you're talking about with the the cops arriving as they're at the train station, they're getting ready to leave. It's again in like a beautiful deep focus that we see like the squad car roll yeah. up like at the end of the platform yeah. how is this going to get ruined you know and exactly then, anytime in a noir i see a couple like at a train station <laughs> i'm like they ain't getting on that train there's no way <laughs> no, they're getting on no. the train but it is very much like a businessman scheme it's like so horrifying what he concocts and that's so jefty has it so all of the money, not just his back pay, but all of the money is missing, and he attributes that to theft on Pete's part. And, and so when Pete is eventually convicted of grand larceny in a court, it's Jeffy who steps in to talk to the judge and say, "Listen, you know, I, I, you know, I, I know he did wrong here, but maybe he can make it right. I, 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 I do love the guy. How about this? How about you have him put him on probation under my care?" 
and that's what ends up happening. And it is such a twisted, like breaking the system type arrangement that only a horrifying businessman like Jeffy could concoct. I'm forever going to have this man linked to me mm-hmm. and I'll be able to con- just t- t- torture their lives, just completely manipulate them and make them constantly walk on eggshells and fear for every moment because he could just ins- at any moment's notice go to a judge and say, ah, he's breaking his parole. Like you got to send this guy to the full extent of the law. 10 years. And Marsh, you know, it, 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 it hits even harder now that you've pointed that out about the screenwriter and his background and his political thoughts, because this is like about, you know, a man being like consumed by, by the capitalist system and, and, uh, you know, shady backroom court dealings between judges and businessmen. Oh, yeah, we see him influencing the police officers. We see him influencing the judge. Again, he's the richest guy in town, and and he's got everyone under his thumb just implicitly. Uh, and it is this, yeah, this terrifying thing. And, and again, yeah, it's... Very much, yeah, the, the small town noir. Uh, I mean, it's it's crazy. Like, his power and influence is, is unbelievable. There's no evidence, and he's convicted anyway for two to ten years. And, you know, I think going back to the topic and, and trying to think of, like, oh, you know, what is, you know, what's different about city noir and country noir, you know, and... And if you think about like city noir, it's often about, you know, corruption is just this thing because everything's so big and it's so easy to get lost in the naked city, right? And and crime often goes unnoticed and and cops are are disinterested and and no one knows who anyone is. There's just so much anonymity. Right. But I often think, you know, in in country noir, in in small town noir, the problem being that everybody knows each other. And of course, foreshadowing certain things that are going to take place in the second film we watched, right? It's that, it's that everybody knows everybody's business and that things can be taken care of and arranged because it's a small town, because it isn't a big city. And then this is taken to that fullest extent where they even leave the small town for a sort of like, you know, the, the grand finale, the extended finale of this film where after... They're sort of playing around in this horrible relationship of like, oh, you're under my wing, you're, you're, you're under probation with me. They all take a trip together. They now leave this small town and they head out to the country into a cabin. And we have all four of them, Pete, Lily, Jeffy, and Susie stuck in a single room having to make nice you know we're all trying to have a nice time trying to have a, a lovely relaxing weekend at the cabin and you can only imagine how sour everything goes yeah yeah it is a it is a rotten vibe at the cabin and yeah. and outside too we're we're given like the full fog treatment to really pump mm-hmm. up the atmospherics of like them going to the cabin and, and of course the film nearing its conclusion and one thing I kept thinking about too in researching a little bit more about uh, Negalesco he started as a painter uh, and like a lot of those guys yeah he got into cinema through painting and through design and it really shines especially when they get out into the woods it's like 
remarkably expressive and, and moody. It's an incredible set. Yes. I mean, you know, so often when you're out in the woods and you have a little cabin scene, it, it feels a bit false or, I mean, in, in a nice in a nice way, a classic Hollywood way. But this one, I mean, it helps that it was set at night, these sequences, but it was one of the best, like, woods sets I feel like I've ever seen. Yeah. And I think largely it is because of how expressive all the way everything arranged is. I mean, it reminds me of the way nature quote-unquote nature looks in Anatahan, the the late Sternberg film where it's like everything is artificial the all the environment is is false but because of that it almost looks too real because of how yeah. expressive it is it reminded me of out of the past in a similar way you know another mm. great country noir but the way Tornare artificially does the forest it's the the greatest shit ever you know and I felt that vibe, uh, you know, with this whole set and this whole sequence. It's also, I was impressed for like a studio set. It is large. It is cavernous. It is a big, uh, it is a big space that they've used and arranged. And I was, you know, just sort of like thinking about the, the, the carpentry of this and surrounded by all these, these very sinister looking trees and Jeff D immediately, uh, Sets it upon himself to show off his 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 drunken marksmanship as he oh announces God, to everyone yeah. that he he becomes a better shot yes. with every drink he takes and and he sure does his uh, his Annie Oakley or his drunken Annie Oakley. Uh, I think it was a tomato can that he sets yeah, up first. This is, it yeah, is one of my favorite moments in the film for for a couple of reasons. But yeah, he's like slurring. And then, like, waving around this shotgun, and everyone's feeling very threatened by him. And he sets up a can of tomato juice uh, and blasts it. And and only in, you know, 1948, we get, like, a, a, a lingering shot of black and white tomato juice dripping on a stump. And I was cracking up at Widmark, because he, he, like, slurs. He goes, oh, that looks like blood, blood, huh? Yeah, we better try something else. <laughs> <laughs> this is like really funny, kind of like hallucinatory moment. Mm-hmm. That was the moment where I almost cheered. But he, <laughs> he was just describing how like violently red that the tomato juice was and how it resembled blood. All I could think was like, God damn, this is a masterpiece. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, and it's just it's just like gray goop like running yeah. down the stump, <laughs> yeah. you know. But I love, yeah, because he's it's off screen when he's saying that we're just looking at this great goop and he's the one telling us what it is. But then, yeah, he's they're they're treading the line, you know, they're playing with death. At one point, he hands uh, the rifle to Lily to let her, you know, go for a shot. Um, I'm forgetting what he he puts he, I his know hat he, on the tree, but then he's also like standing right underneath it, yeah. daring right. her yeah, to exactly. shoot him. He inches closer and closer to the hat, and she does on her own, like start to turn the rifle on him, and he's just facing it down with that again, like you know, very sinister grin. 
like you said, like daring her, like, yeah, go for it. Pull the fucking trigger. Do it. Was almost willing it, you know? Like, yeah, fucking do it. Shoot me. I'm fucking twisted. I'm Joker style here. Like, <laughs> like I want it. You know? Well, he's constantly giving them these fake outs about how ways they can escape. He's planting all these seeds. He's handing them the gun. He's talking about the fact that they're so close to the border and that mm-hmm. there's a boat not far in these woods that could be very easy to just get on the water and make your way, you know, out of here. And I mean, that is the route they end up taking. They they take him up on these, you know, on these seeds that he's planting. Uh, and in a brawl, they knock him out. Yeah, a little fist fight in the moonlight. Oh, yeah, dude. Yeah, Cornell nice. Wilde just fucking snapped, I love it, and just kicked the shit out of him. And and of course, <laughs> Lily and Susie are like, dude, you're going to go to prison for this. But he's beyond caring at this point. He's yeah. just mm-hmm. knocking the hell out of, uh, <laughs> out of Jeff T. And it was so... So satisfying. Oh, yeah. And and Jeff D nails Lily and she has like blood on her face for the, like the rest of the movie. Uh, and it's really like, yeah, Ida getting like fucking dirty. Her face is like covered in mud and blood and shit. One thing that I did think was a bit weird, though, is so then after they beat him up and they destroy his gun so that they, you know, he can't kill them after he goes after them and they run off. Pete and Lily run off into the woods to get on this boat and cross the border. Susie finds in Jeffy's coach, she finds like the the money slip, the like the envelope that had her signature on it saying how much money was in there, thus signifying like, oh, this is evidence proving that Jeffy fucking set them up. That was the one moment where I was sort of not that it matters, but I was questioning like why on earth <laughs> would he have left that in his coat or let alone brought it all the way out there? That seems like something he would have pretty carefully t- taken care of back at his place. Well, to me, it's because he has delusions of grandeur and because he's a psychopath because he trusts no one but himself. So where would the safest place for this one thing that could nail him be other than on his person. Sure. He's the most powerful guy in town. No one's going to search his jacket, yeah. you know? I mean, that's maybe reading into it too much, but, like, yeah, maybe he's just an idiot. I mean, he is he is losing his fucking mind in this he movie. Should have, like, <laughs> he should have burned it. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, he should have destroyed it. It doesn't really make any sense. Yeah, so. I also, again, I think it is also, you know, just a, the mark of a guy who... who doesn't think i mean he knows he's above the law look at what he got away with he got a guy sentenced to like two to ten years in fucking prison just on his word alone like no actual proof at all Mm -hmm. so the fuck does that guy give a shit there was it didn't even seem like there was any evidence presented at the trial (laughs) well they they do yeah they like hard cut over the trial it's just like and here's the verdict (laughs) brutal (laughs) oh man Uh, there's a really uh, again a really charged moment when pete and lily are preparing to run away and leave the cabin and and susie (laughs) says to lily You've got a wonderful guy. <laughs> and it's like so heartbreaking. And it was especially in the cabin where I'm like, Susie. I'm like, this movie's about Susie and how she's alone, you know? But they run away. 
They disappear into the fog as Richard Widmark comes to from being knocked out in, in the fist fight and quickly produces a gun that was yeah. in, a, in a drawer. Another Abercrombie and Fitch revolver. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. And we get, you know, what, I guess what you would maybe expect in, in the climax of a noir like this, uh, a deranged psychopath chasing people through a forest to reach the boat that will take them to Canada to safety. And as Jefty's running after them, Susie's also running after them. So the quadrangle all just like, yeah, running through an expressionist forest. And we get these really wonderful close-ups of Ida as like the branches are hitting her face. And they're like, I mean, I think they're like two miles from the boat and they're just like running. They're booking it. And they also just like we're we're doing violence to each other and are all beat up, and very oh, yeah. t- very <laughs> tired. Uh, and so yeah, obviously it it climaxes at the boat. And they're intelligent. They do like a bit of a fake out. Pete like puts their coats in the boat and you know revs up the engine, sets it out onto the water. But they don't go in it because they assume that you know Richard Woodmark probably has something up his sleeve, and he does. He shows up with that surprise gun and shoots the motor of the boat causing it to ignite and jefty's pretty relaxed in that moment he thinks great i've let them on fire (laughs) fucked. (laughs) they are not gonna make it to canada and then pete of course hops out of the bushes and kicks the shit out of them but not before uh susie gets shot in the shoulder (laughs) for her troubles she hands them the deposit slip she's like I have the proof you're innocent. And Jeffy just out of nowhere blasts the poor woman in the shoulder. Yeah, yeah, she does. She eats a bullet for all of her, all of her, for <laughs> efforts or her efforts. Yeah, and then Ida grabs the gun. Lily grabs the gun, and once again, in the in a moment of like sadomasochism, Jeffy is like. You wouldn't shoot me. You wouldn't shoot me as she's like backing up and he's creeping towards her. Uh, and he pulls uh, a rock uh, from the ground as if to strike her and she blasts him in the belly. The only place a guy like that deserves to be shot, if you ask <laughs> yeah. me, right in the fucking, <laughs> right in the belly. Yeah. Yep, and as he's dying, he looks to Pete and says, uh, I told you she was different. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Ida mm. hits different, that's for sure. I mean, there's no doubt about it. And 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 to add insult to injury, too, I was, I was fucking losing it. Poor Susie. Pete picks her up. She's got a bullet in her, in her arm, uh, and she goes, I'm pretty heavy. <laughs> It was like the fucking saddest thing. And he's like, ah, no problem. He's like, I'm Cornell Wilde. And he just like picks her up. I I love it. It's like just the classic noir ending where it's like all this violence, like, you know, climaxes here. And and there isn't really much resolution as far as I'm concerned. Because aren't they now just going to be wanted for murder? Like, who's going to be able to... 
Nah, I mean, you know, I imagine they still got that slip, though. Like, they didn't destroy the evidence, so they'll be able to say, like, hey, look, you know, and they've got a witness, they've got Susie, but again, I guess there are many moments where they draw attention to the fact that the woman as witnesses are, like, not valued by the police <laughs> right. in they this town. they would have been there for the trial in the first place. I right. mean, like, <laughs> he just killed a, a very respected member of this community. Yeah, know? well, maybe, is, they're, yeah. maybe they're fleeing to Portland to just set up their bowling alley by the sea then, you know? <laughs> it is ambivalent for sure. I mean, I think another like interesting uh, aspect of this film is again like the absence of the femme fatale, and and the, apparently this was like you know more common in the late forties. We we're now entering a Cold War vibe, a post-war vibe where brothers are now fighting against each other, right? There's no more wartime camaraderie. It's not the woman who's going to lead us, you know, down a dark path, but our our friend who's going to snitch us out to HUAC or my best friend who runs the goddamn bowling alley, you know? Uh, so this, yeah, this different kind of post-war noir uh, where everything's cracking up and best friends are turning on each other. Again This couldn't happen Again This is that once in a lifetime This is the thrill well, I think, you know, one of the obvious connections between these films and thinking of these films as country noir is the fish out of water. As we get that, of course, with Lily in Roadhouse, that's also the setup of uh, what we get in Terribly Happy as we get the big city cop a little out of his depth. Uh, oh. <laughs> a little out of his depth in small town Denmark. <laughs> What's going on over here? Yeah, the I was, I was getting loose on the gauntlet. Yeah. The, yeah. <laughs> Get me to the gauntlet country. <laughs> I was also going to say, I think that, you know, from, from what we were just talking about, uh, you know, as a, as a, a connection slash departure between the two films is that terribly happy does lean more into the traditional femme fatale and, and riffs on that traditional femme fatale of a man being perhaps manipulated by that, that, that buxom blonde, that beautiful blonde, uh, because you know, the way she's even presented in the film is I think like very much riffing on that idea. You yeah, know. the second scene with her, she's got uh, sunglasses on like she's in, you know, Chinatown or whatever. And, and I think, you know, I think it, the film also does a, a sleight of hand with that setup as well, right? Yeah, it it didn't follow the expectations it's, it's setting up with that. Like, uh, it reminded me of Jim Thompson or like Southern Noir because while yeah. it sets itself up as a conventional uh, film noir. It is not exactly that, as uh, the the character we're following, Robert, is not exactly the most 
reliable, I guess, uh, window into this world. <laughs> no, no, certainly not. No. And I think that's why, you know, I, I, I leaned into uh, this film, you know, and, and was like, oh, I got to go with this one because he's he is one of the characters that I, I do love in in uh, you see in, in in quite a few noir, the the sort of like disgraced cop, you know, he's not the hero cop. He's not the the the, the straight bowler like Cornell Wilde. He's the, he is immediately alluded to as being uh, a, a violent man, potentially a dangerous man, and someone who's being sent out here you know, as sort of like a penalty box, right? I mean, yeah. he's being put out here in the middle of nowhere where, you know, as much as it's being presented as like him, you know, hey, you know, you can get healthy out here. It's also like, has he been taken out here the middle of nowhere where there's very few people and nothing much happening so that he won't hurt others, right? He won't, yeah. he won't actually be a threat to the community he's supposed to be protecting. Well, which is the exact basic sort of setup of one of the classic uh, country noirs on dangerous ground, where Robert Ryan is mm -hmm. the, the violent, psychopathic police officer who is sent to the country to cool off and, you know, investigate this other thing, like don't harm anyone. And of course, in that film, he finds grace by falling in love with Ida Lupino. Yeah. However, <laughs> Terribly Happy uh, takes uh, the opposite sort of direction, which is more of a descent into madness. <laughs> yeah, um, but yeah. we'll, uh, we should set it up a little more, right? Because there's also some ominous stuff. It's got that kind of classic setup, like what happened to the previous cop in this town? Because there's only one <laughs> police officer in this town, and I believe that person is missing. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, it actually reminded me of uh, Summerfield, which yes. we talked about on the pod. It had very similar vibes leading in, where it's you know new blood entering this, this community that has its own rules, has its own systems. People go missing in this town, but it's not something that people typically worry about. They mm -hmm. like to handle everything on their own. You know, they they had a, a sheriff they could rely on. And in Summerfield, there is that sheriff that's like, you know, tr <laughs> stop trying to do things different here. You know, yeah. we, we've got a setup. There's there's a way we handle things here. And that, yes, that is very much the case here, but with the collision of the, you know, the city folk coming in from Copenhagen to to the countryside. And there's also that... that that interesting sort of little prologue where we get, you know, in voiceover, a, a, a sort of fable that's told about this town yeah. and and a, a two-headed a two-headed calf that's born with uh, the head of a man and, and the head of a cow and uh, how the locals at a certain point thought it was uh, such an abomination that they, they ended up throwing it into the bog. And that is really what's emphasized here in this story is that, you know, in this area, uh, whenever it rains, and it seems to rain all the time, uh, the the surrounding fields turn into this sort of boggy swamp. A marshland. A marshland <laughs> that swallows <laughs> everything up, you know, and that's where this town has historically always turned to... Uh, dispose of unpleasant things, you know, things that they want to get rid of. So then, yes, as you mentioned, he's he's told in one form or another that there have been disappearances, that things have 
gone missing around here. And and it doesn't take Columbo to, to put two and two together. To, <laughs> no, it certainly doesn't. To make the connection between this little fable that's being told and, yes, the, the predecessor who's who's gone missing or, as our cop quickly discovers, also the owner of the bike store that, that no one seems to know, you know, uh, uh, where he went, you know, but, but he's just gone and no one really seems to be that troubled about his disappearance. But yeah, you get that sort of introductory to a weird place out in the middle of nowhere and, and he's he spends a lot of the the opening of the film learning about the the rituals and the eccentricities of this particular locale and the and the, the odd greeting and uh, farewell in the town that is given a great deal of attention they draw so much attention to this word moin which means both hello and goodbye and uh, his the man who drives him out to the the countryside says like yeah they say moin here you're gonna be hearing moin a lot yeah. uh you want to fit in you gotta say moin um, even the cats say moin in this town you know yeah uh but maybe that'll be something we could all start saying to each other too i like we'll it we'll be moin guys yeah i like it i mean it's like aloha right <laughs> yeah. aloha means the same thing hello goodbye it's just a a nice greeting simplifies things you know yeah. because these people are pretty tight-lipped as well you know, a lot of uh, what we discover and what we learn is is often just hinted at. You know, there's there's a lot of 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 stuff sort of simmering and bubbling under the surface. I mean, the film is about secrets, and I think that's another great hallmark of noir: revelations that are going to to surface up from the bog, the marshland. You know. Yeah, and it turns out this town has uh, quite the the sort of undercurrent of violence and and we learn this as we're you know, we're introduced to you know a few key players right uh the doctor the priest and the grocery store owner who are like these i guess three with three old wise men kind of weird setup they play cards together uh, and they're all prominent members of this community and the grocery store owner is a particular crank who's always <laughs> calling the police for you know shoplifting incidents of like you know two sodas and a sandwich and he's got a kid locked in a cupboard in his office and this is going to become a recurring uh, gag slash space of the film this guy's just got like a little prison behind his wood panel in his grocery store back room <laughs> office yeah yeah and robert our 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 cop who's you know trying to play it by the book you know he uses that phrase a lot by the book by the book so clearly yes he's He's on a redemption arc. Yeah, here. he did something bad. Yes, and so he's trying to play it by the book. So as he's called into this shoplifting incident, and as you said, they reveal that that the young the young thief is being kept in the cupboard. Uh, Robert takes out his notebook to start, you know, interrogating him and filling out the report. And the locals, the grocer particularly, is sort of like, "Hey, man." You know, we don't need that. Put that away. And he goes, really you know, do reports here. Yeah, we don't really do reports here. You know, your predecessor would just, you know, knock him around a little bit and send him on his way. <laughs> and Robert is like aghast. You know, he's like, I'm not gonna fucking do that. I'm not gonna just hit a kid. I think that's what he says. I'm not gonna hit a child. You know. And he is very upset by this and doesn't want to do it. And they're all like, kind of egging him on. Just, just 
just clip him once and like get him on his way. And they even they even sort of imply that that you know if if he does play it by the straight and narrow, it's going to be worse. It's going to be worse for this kid. They say you know hey if it gets back to his dad like his dad will beat him ten times worse than what you do. So why don't you just do the easy thing? slap the kid and let's all go about our business here. But Robert in this initial encounter refuses, you know, and he tells him, I'm going to let you off with a warning. I'm not going to stoop to that level. These people may have their weird way of doing things, but I'm not going to let that corrupt me. Yeah, no, he's really trying to play it clean. I mean, we get the other, you know, sequence where we meet some other people in the town when he he heads to the local bar, you know, not quite similar to the roadhouse, but at the very least uh, a gathering space that is common in the rural noir, you know, heading out to the to the countryside bar. And yeah, when he comes in, the bartender makes a gag saying like, oh, hey, you know, this is around the same time that uh, you know, the previous sheriff would come in and get his beer. And he's like, no, 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 no. I would like a soda. Mm-hmm. Uh, thank you very little. I, <laughs> you know, I am, I'm on duty here. And then I remember thinking like he, he was so bad at kind of appealing to the other members of the town because so the initial mystery he has is that like his bicycle tire is like is flat and that's when he goes to the bicycle store and he learns that oh the bicycle shop owner he's he's missing and he makes reference to that fact in the bar like oh we don't know where the the guy who runs the cyclist shop where he could be and one of the guys in the bar like makes a joke saying like oh sounds like you need to find a cycle Ologist. You know, he like makes a joke, like a pun about, you know, a bicycle and a psychologist. And it's like totally harmless and funny. Uh, and the cop is just like, he's so stiff about it. You know, he, he doesn't give him a, a smile or a laugh. And it's like, easiest thing in the world, man. Just laugh at the guy's joke, does no harm at all. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it's like, it's odd because he's trying to be, you know, straight laced. He's, he's trying to be a straight bowler, but he, I don't know. He just makes no effort to sort of like win over members of the town in ways that are totally straight laced and nice. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> it's, it's established. He's wound up pretty tight and there's already even yeah. this, yes, this implication that he snapped and, and he had a sort of emotional breakdown and it was violent in nature and he is on some sort of medication for that. Uh, and, you know, again, I think so much of what he's trying to do is prove that he is he's good enough to get back to the city and particularly to his daughter. That that really seems to be what, what matters to him. So he looks at these people... Yeah, with contempt. With contempt, you know. He sees them as a bunch of weirdo bumpkins. He doesn't want to become friends with them. He doesn't want to get friendly. He doesn't want to do things their way. He's going to do it by the book, play it straight, convince everybody that he's he's fine and and he's not a, a danger to others, his family, his daughter. Uh, so yeah, I mean, as you said, Ryan, he is he is not ingratiating himself with these people, but yeah. uh, but a lot of it is. I think by choice, you know, he wants yeah. to keep everyone at bay. Everyone seems to be sort of looking at him in the corner of their eye. You know, everyone's sure, also of course. measuring him up. So, so there is this kind of this air of, of, of something, something being off throughout this opening. Yeah. I guess just my impulse with like a guy makes a pun is just laugh at the pun. <laughs> well, you know me, I'm a, I'm a good fan of, of, yeah, so. you know. <laughs>
Yeah, we should introduce then the sort of love triangle, femme fatale, uh, cowboy hat wearing guy element of this movie. Because uh, as the gossip gets around this town very quickly, Robert learns about Jorgen. And Jorgen, as Andy mentioned, is the woman Ingelisa, the sunglass wearing femme fatale who sort of appears in Robert's life. Uh, several times early on in the film is, yes, married to uh, the toughest son of a bitch <laughs> in the town. He's kind of a Jefty figure, I was thinking, uh, looking back on it. And he, yes, wears cow skull bolo ties and cowboy hats. Uh, and according to the doctor, has, yes, broken legs and arms all over town. Yeah, he's the town bully. Did either of you, uh, or I guess do either of you think that he kind of looks just a little bit with that cowboy hat like Ted Cruz? Um, oh, God. <laughs> just I didn't something put that I was together. thinking that like made me laugh like a beefy, angry Ted Cruz yeah. who's like picking on uh, this like cop you yeah. know, from the big city. I guess a bit of a physical resemblance there, Ryan, but I'll tell you one thing. I would not be afraid of of being cornered by, by Ted Cruz, but, but no, of Jorgen. Uh, <laughs> does have a much more uh, imposing and threatening presence. And that is established very quickly when, you know, following this, this shoplifting incident where Robert steadfastly refuses to, like, whack this kid, Jorgen kind of surprises Robert, you know, at his at his squad car, his, like, squad SUV, because he's in the country, right? And he, he's sort of trying to, you know, sniff out Robert and find out if he has designs on his wife because Jorgen, it's also established, is an incredibly jealous and possessive man in spite of the fact that he has this this violent, abusive uh, relationship with his wife. You know, it's not just physical abuse, it's it's mental and emotional abuse. And, and then, you know, in this conversation where Robert's kind of like, who the fuck are you? Get out of my squad car. Jorgen like grabs the kid that that you know Robert refused to hit and just slaps the shit out of him in front of Robert and says, you know, you better adjust to our ways of doing things around here, you know, that that Jorgen is a a very uh violent man and you know Ingalese you know, is is also being very seductive with Robert. You know, she's sort of telling him about how Jorgen beats her and 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 hurts her and has almost killed her. And she does this thing where she she goes to show him one of her scars and she leans in very very close to Robert. You know, so she's certainly like coming on to him in these moments and and is being presented as this. This, yes, this this battered woman, this abused woman. But Jorgen, for his part, tries to say, whoa, there's two sides to this. Look at my scars. And he even shows Robert, hey, she came at me with a bottle. So there is this kind of like twisted thing that's happening yeah. where it's like Robert should know better. Robert should be reading between the lines here, but, but yeah. he's not aware <laughs> that he's in a neo-noir and we are. And we can see <laughs> the web that he is now being caught in between. The snag. Yes, the snag between Ingalese and Jorgen. 
Yeah, I like the scene when she's flirting with him over the laundry, when he's like hanging up all his clothes to dry, and she's like, "Yo, I could tell you're you're from out of town. You know, you got all this stuff thrown up here willy nilly." And like, look at your neighbors, and the she points out the fact that everything's organized by color and type of clothing, you know. And so she's arranging his delicates, you know, moving his socks around. Um, I thought that was a creative, creative little flirting gag. We've got our, our bowling flirting, and now we've got our laundry flirting in this. There's so much that's being presented about, like, the order of this place and people yeah. trying to get Robert to fit into that order, you know? Even as you mentioned, this this trio that, that you know, we get introduced to of the grocer, the the doctor, Dr. Zerlang, and the priest, you know, they're they're three guys playing cards, but what they're really looking for is a fourth. That's right. You know? They got the odd number and and the you know, the predecessor, he was their fourth. And it's just thrown the whole game off. They're really trying to to get him to to join the card game, to to reestablish the order and balance of their community. And our guy would really just rather play solitaire like Lily yeah. <laughs> by the lake, you yeah. know, and, and pet the cat alone that, that he's been yeah. <laughs> forced to, to now take care of. And it's uh, in, in this developing relationship that, and a tr- mutual uh, attraction that Robert and Ingeliza have uh, is when it's revealed what, of course, Robert got suspended for because he discloses to her, you know, that he, he did something terrible and he pulled a gun on his wife. And he doesn't really elaborate much more than that at, in that moment. But this unsettles her uh, quite a bit. And they have a, a little confrontation and... I, I really didn't see it coming, but but should have at this moment. He he grabs her uh, kind of violently, and he does so in a way that's reminiscent to when Jefty grabbed Pete uh, in the first act of Roadhouse, an indication of the capability of this man's violence, yes. right? I also think that reveal really distinguishes this film as being a a film about police officers that's not from the United States. Just the fact that he was sent out not for, you know, pulling a gun on a citizen like on the job, but like a personal matter that happened in his home, like using his police officer's gun and pulling it on his wife. And that's like why he's being sent away like that would never happen in America. (laughs) That would be something he would he would share with other members of the squad. And they'd be like, oh, man, like, that's not great. Um, But anyways, like, uh, you know, get back out there today. Right. (laughs) Although, you know, his boss does say to him in their initial drive out, he's like, that's the great thing about the police. They always give you a second chance. And I was like, God damn, that's so fucking true. Oh, you yeah. Know? Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. yeah, I mean, totally, Ryan. But, like, the, the film does, like, know that and acknowledge that. Yes. Through the interactions with the boss, there are some sort of, like, very negative implied things about how police operate, especially when you've got, yes, guys like this on your force. Uh, oh, we'll just move him over to this other job mm-hmm. and forget about the whole yeah. thing. We'll send him out to the middle of nowhere. I, I think another key element that we, we should point out is that, you know, he isn't just this 
sort of like put upon sap that that Ingalese is playing. Like he starts to basically stalk her. Yes. And at night, you know, on his nightly um, patrol, on a night patrol. Yeah, he likes to cruise by her house and peek through the windows and she's aware of that, you know? She picks up on it as well. So he's like doing a bit of a bit of his own kind of, you know, uh, creeping. And she is in that moment, you know, when when he reveals, like, I was violent to my wife. I pulled a gun on her. She has a moment of being like, I got to get out of here. Like, I'm trying to get away from, from Jorgen. I don't need another, like, violent man in my life. And that is when he kind of... He grabs her like I'm not. I'm not violent and crazy. You don't even understand what's going on here, you know. Which is always a huge red flag. And so it, of course, leads to uh, one night when Dorth, the daughter of Ingaliza and maybe Jorgen, she walks her, you know, stuffed animals in a baby carriage. Uh, when things aren't quite right at home, you know, according to the townspeople. And so he hears her as everyone does in the town every time that this happens yeah, and no the, one does anything. The squeal of the like rusty wheels on her like yeah. antique. There's a lot of carriage. aggressive foley in this movie. Oh, and, yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and so he goes to intervene. You know, he injects himself into uh, this sort of mysterious sadomasochistic relationship that's going on. And he shows up at their house. Yorian is like blackout drunk on the stairs, sort of like sleeping, sitting up. And he then, of course, you know, just he just walks into these people's house, you know, red flag, right? Like cops can go wherever the hell they want. Absolutely. Absolutely. And he's leaning into, you know, his power as this liberatory force. And so he's just, yeah, he's walking into these people's house. He goes into the bedroom and, and finds her battered on the bed. And uh, then, yes, we we go full-blown sort of like psychodrama as we get into, you know, the, the Jim Thompson turn where yeah. uh, they have sex with Jorgen passed out in the hallway next door <laughs> with her covered in like bruises. Uh, and it's, yeah, it's extremely uncomfortable. And she's moaning and moaning. And, and he, Robert, of course, is, doesn't want to wake Jorgen. That would be very bad. And so he's trying to muffle her. Yeah. And he puts the pillow over her face to muffle her. And, and again, this is where I'm like, all right, this is like... Native son. Yeah, this is the, yeah, yeah. Or the killer inside me. Like something, this is just gonna just go fucking horrible from here. And yes, he quote unquote accidentally suffocates her on the bed. It is a, it is a very like cold and like brutal murder sequence. Yeah. And it's, yeah, it's grimy as fuck. And he quickly uh, gets out of there and, you know, pretends that nothing happened, yeah, but he's... Sneaks out. <laughs> drives out to the countryside to just barf. Yes. It's awesome. <laughs> Love a good barf shot. And it's a great way to climax, like, yeah, that type of grotesque scene. <laughs> exactly. And so, yeah, it was it was wonderful. I knew, Ryan, you were going to highlight the barf because... <laughs> yeah, yeah. <why> not. <laughs> 
How could you not? Yes. And and uh, immediately he's called to the scene of the crime and concocts with the extremely on drugs doctor that he's befriended uh, to basically cover it up, right? And say that she died of cardiac arrest and specifically because they don't want to charge Jorgen because then all the sort of bullshit, you know, that actually goes on in the town may be revealed. You know, once he is called in to the scene of his own crime to investigate it, you know, Dr. Zerlang is like, you know, I prescribed her a lot of meds that she was not supposed to have. And, you know, if that comes out or there was any implication that I somehow was involved, so why don't we just say it was natural causes, you know? And that way, Jorgen won't be taken away from his daughter and I won't get in trouble. But there's this great moment where Robert, you know, beside himself with this, with this guilt, like says to the doctor, I killed her. And the doctor's like, no, 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 no. Like, kind of like passes yeah, You may it off. feel responsible, but really, <laughs> right, yeah. you know, this has been going on. And it's know? awesome because, I mean, he flat out is like trying to confess. Like, yeah. he's like, dude, I fucking did this. And the doctor's like, don't worry. We're going to, we're going to clean it all up. We'll all be okay. And, and, you know, no one, no one has to get in trouble for anything that they think they might have done when anything happens everybody knows about it everybody finds out word travels fast yeah, in, in these an almost small like towns. supernatural way absolutely yeah and everybody's just there like lined up outside the house and then uh, robert delivers the verdict of the doctor it was cardiac arrest tragic accident a tragic accident but of course one glance at the faces of the townspeople and and they ain't buying it they know something's up here and their first you know, thought we, we, we get is not nah, fucking Jorgen did it. We yeah. all know Jorgen did this. They look like a lynch mob and they're, and they're ready to kill. And I think that's again, another like, you know, nod to the Western elements of it, you know, outside of the cowboy hat. Uh, but yeah, that small town vibe, like, you know, if anything happens, everyone's ready to, you know, throw someone into the bog uh-huh. for their wrongdoing as a posse. Yeah. We also get, a very sort of like uh, abrupt shift, an abrupt cut from uh, from a, a very like bad moment to a sort of like celebration scene or a party scene because we go right from this to Ingalise's funeral and the and the the townsfolk all meeting after the funeral in in the bar <laughs> where they're gonna have cookies and snacks. The the priest is. Uh, giving a very kind of like harsh eulogy yeah, it's where he's sort of accusatory eulogy where he's like calling everyone out. Yeah. And Ingalese, it's like victim blaming as well. It's like, <laughs> well, you know, we all know she didn't really fit in here. She was never yeah, really, they're like she, cause she is a, a, you know, to them a foreigner. Cause she's like from another town. Yeah. Another like no name town, but yeah, that's basically what the, the priest says, you know, this was bound to happen. She never really fit in. She was always, you know, doing things her own way. And then they have the, the, the funeral uh, the after party where they're all at the bar. And, and of course, everyone is just totally convinced of Jorgen's guilt, you know. And Jorgen, he knows he didn't do it. You know, he's, he's sure that he didn't do it. So There's I, a really great dolly shot of a buffet uh, that opens that as well. A lot of good, like, 
Scandinavian snacks laid out, and everyone's like, you know, I mean, like, really, again, you know, to speak to just how like fucked up this town is, it's like no one really cares. Mm -hmm. Like they they care about how they're gonna react maybe to it, but like they don't really care that she's dead. They're just like, "Eh, well, you know, the town are really and have been for a while, you know, fed up with all of the the antics of of Ingles and Jorgen they're they're kind of a yeah. a blight on the community and this starts to come out you know that that they they they've been looking for reasons to get rid of the two of them and now the inevitable finally happened as far as they're concerned and this could give them the opportunity to get rid of the second problem and it seems to be another weird power dynamic similar to just like an, an odd arrangement in Roadhouse where it's they are put under pro or well specifically Pete is put under probation under the care of Jeff D. Here there's also some sort of thing kind of happening in the background where Jorgen is so certain that he did not kill his wife. He's like, if I know anything I know, it's like I'm pretty pretty positive I didn't do that. Mm-hmm. You know, it's implied that he has assumptions about Robert. Um, committing the crime it's not made clear until later how he really feels but then even then Robert is trying to just play along with the town but also kind of hovers over Jorgen you know essentially saying well I made this look nice I did the whole cardiac arrest thing for your benefit but I could spin this and make it nasty you know it's sort of like I I have control over you Jorgen a little bit too so you have to play nice Mm -hmm. and maybe the comparison is too obvious but it does I feel like resemble very much the dynamic that's present in Hot Fuzz, which came out the year prior, you know, just like that idea of a small town with their own neighborhood watch. They're the ones who are controlling everything. It seems so clean and efficient and uh, nice at first, but in reality, it's much darker because of the way they're twisting the narrative in their town in order to make bad things go away and there's like a there's like a weird yeah like mythical or even supernatural kind of like thing going on as well because there is a a scene where robert wakes up and he sees these cars driving out into the into the country and he follows them uh and it appears like they're gonna kill Jorgen in the bog uh, and and Robert intervenes and you know it's just another one of those those scenes where someone's like you are meddling in shit you don't understand right because he's like interrupting you know whatever ritual or you know secret laws that are going on here cool him. Gud og hente om, sagde jeg. Blander dig noget, du ikke har forstand på. Det bliver værst for dig selv. Jørgen! Jørgen, kom nu ind. Det skulle du ikke have gjort. Finn Dole. Yeah, because Jorgen, like, 
marches out into the bog. You know, he does so like, you know, he's very clearly like accepting his fate. Yes. And Robert does, you know, jump in between him, pull out a gun, say like, get the fuck away from this guy. Like, you know, whatever's happening, we're going to deal with this, you know, by the book. You're not going to have this mob justice. And it was a heart attack after all. So Jorgen's not guilty. And that's actually very true. Jorgen isn't guilty. But Jorgen. And I think this is also what you're getting at here, Marsh. The guys leave and Jorgen comes out of the bog and Jorgen says after being saved, you really shouldn't have done that. Yeah. Like it's, it's a really bizarre moment, you know, like, what do you mean? <laughs> like you were, uh, you were about to be killed. You know what? Uh, you, I saved you. If anything, you should be thanking me. But he says like, dude, like, that that actually would have cleaned a lot of problems up. Yeah. You know? Like if I had just died in the bog. You could just let him disappear and do nothing about it. You know, Robert really failed to recognize his power in that situation. Yeah. Well, it's because he's trying to play everything by the book because he fucking murdered a woman. <laughs> right. I mean, yeah. <laughs> a pattern with him where he, yeah, he does something really horrible and then it's like, no, I'm on the. I'm a straight bowler, you know. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Don't worry. We can fix this. We can fix this. And yeah, I mean, like the film from here is just this, this like constant then like unraveling and this twisting and turning of, of yeah, like a false investigation that's taking place, and 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 Robert finds himself in this strange position of of trying to like protect Jorgen, but but also try to make sure that nothing comes back on him. And this does then lead to a moment where it seems like, in a very almost again, like a John Ford way, gonna like clear the air between the two of them, where where, you know, Jorgen enters the bar and Robert orders two beers and they start to have this bizarre drinking contest between the two of them. Yeah, and the beginning of that scene is uh, when, you know, Robert's in there drinking. He's no longer drinking soda. He's drinking beer. He's, you know, becoming... Uh, he's becoming. Uh, and and <laughs> yeah. the, the bartender or someone at the bar says, ah, the new marshal is now like the old marshal, right? And it's what they like, you know? This marshal who will play cards and drink beer and smack children on the head, you know? <laughs> and so it's like for, for them, for the townsfolk, they're like, yes, this is good, mm-hmm. you know? He's drinking. Like, we like this. Yeah, and they have this, like, awesome, like, drinking contest uh, that made me very, like, nostalgic for the days when I uh, could put down beer and shot after shot <laughs> like that. And uh, they they seem to be on, like, a moment of... of you know, like mending their fences through this uh, gargantuan feat of, of, of drinking that they, they both uh, go through there. But, you know. Yeah, it doesn't end well. You know, they get, they get pissed drunk. They have a confrontation in the bathroom of the bar. Uh, but he just leaves and he goes back to his uh, apartment, which is in the back of the police station, which is just like a, yeah, like a, Two room situation, sort of a Andy yeah. Griffith show, yeah. uh, sort of Danish. <laughs> yeah, there, there's no real like police station. No, you know? yeah. it's just it's just his apartment with a sign out front that says police. You know, <laughs> and when he gets home, he finds Jorgen in his apartment, and Jorgen is uh, 
looking at photos of his family, and he's got the brass button on Robert's uniform that he accidentally left behind at the uh, the old crime scene, which is also Jorgen's bedroom. In that moment, obviously, Jorgen has realized, yes, obviously, the truth of the situation, what actually happened. And Robert, fully embracing uh, himself, uh, pulls out a gun and... Well, he shoots him. It's a great death scene, by the way, on that guy, because he just starts to laugh, you know, when he shoots Jorgen. It's very, it's very twisted. It's very sinister. Very Jefty. Very Jefty. Very Jefty. Yes, yeah. that's true. Yeah. The cackle, you know, and like all the <laughs> poker player guys start cackling. Yeah, they feel it spiritually. Yeah, I mean, it is like they all kind of like want this, I, I guess, to to happen you know they're like the oracles of the town yes. you know they're the ones that are sort of like um, guiding everything spiritually with their, with their deck of cards well you know? and and again you know it's like what that group represents are like the the pillars of this this small community right yeah. it's it's the doctor it's the the shopkeeper the one shopkeeper the grocer and the priest mm-hmm. and all they've been missing all along is the lawman, yeah, the marshal. you know, to, to really kind of complete that 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 quadrangle. There is this almost like magical realist element that's been kind of lurking throughout. The fact that everybody knows what goes on, the fact that everybody is almost like telepathically like linked is is constantly being alluded to. And I think you nailed it there in terms of like, yeah, what really to me makes this, you know, film a, a noir, a neo-noir is the fate element, right? And the fatalism and and just the fact that it's like these these characters almost have no choice in, in what they're doing, you know? Uh, in that sense, like Robert's just like the fucking devil, you know? Like, yeah, that's what I wrote in my notes. I'm just like, the killer inside me he's yeah. the fucking he's satan like he's the lawman he's just gonna like be hitting children and blasting people in this town restoring order in this extremely like dark way yeah i mean he becomes very evil like as the film builds which is what i really like about it you know he isn't just this like oh poor me guy you know everything that happens is like like you said like his fault and, and, you know, he's like, he is just, you know, desperately trying to sort of like weasel his way out of everything and just making things worse and yeah. leading to, to more death, more destruction, more separation. As you said, there's like this element of, of fate, but I, I see in so much noir, the fall, right? We have the fall and, and certainly it begins with a fall from grace. He is a, is a, a disgraced cop. But but it's this like further descent that that try as you will to claw your way out, you you only like dig yourself in deeper. You only make it worse. It's like from the get go, you should have just accepted who you were. You should have just ac- accepted the darkness, accepted your role in all this. But it's his attempt to resist it, to fight against it, to say I'm not this bad man. I'm not this killer. I'm not this violent guy. That only proves it further you know like the bog itself you know when you find yourself stuck in it it's like quicksand you know the more you struggle against it the deeper and deeper you sink 
You know, speaking of the bog, he he takes, of course, the, the dead body of Jorgen out there in an insane rainstorm. And that's like maybe my favorite shot in the movie is the overhead of the bog because it's like black, all-consuming darkness uh, pervading the uh, 235 image, you know? <laughs> I was swallowed up. Yeah, I like the bog scenes. I like the way the bog scenes look. Yeah, the bog. I preferred is cool. when the film was out by the bog. Yeah, <laughs> there's like a truck in there, like kind of floating. All sorts of stuff in that bog. Wow, there's yeah. I mean, I almost thought when you know when the cops show up later and they're like digging up, they're like looking for stuff. I'm like, man, how many bodies are in that bog? Because kind of implied a lot. <laughs> oh yeah. Like if you whole just, families, yeah, generations. You got like a John Wayne Gacy situation, you know, or like <laughs> a Rillington Place situation. Like you just keep finding them. Oh yeah, yeah. And <laughs> as you mentioned, you know, the cops do arrive from from the big city, from Tonder or whatever the hell it's called. You know, some other like no name town, but a, a no name town that's slightly bigger than this yeah. one. And it seems now for Robert that the jig is up, that he's going to be found out. You know, he sees the cops and they're there to dig up the bog, to pull out a body. And he prepares to meet his fate, to confess. And this is where we get another very twisted turn of these cops and the fact that everyone has secrets and everyone has things they want to hide and keep buried, even if for a moment they do get you know, surfaced, you know, that's this whole thing with his commanding officer. Yeah. His boss with the sunglasses, uh, just when you think, you know, Robert's going to confess to him, he's like, we pulled up a body. It's my nephew. He was the bicycle shop owner. I sent him here after he got in a little trouble. I mm -hmm. sent him here to cool off, uh, and he, and he disappeared, and that's him in the bog. Right. And, and again, something, <laughs> something he wants to keep under wraps yeah. because, you know, this dude was supposed to go to jail and like he used his authority. He pulled strings to get him out of trouble. And so if anybody found out that he, this, this, this officer, this, you know, again, this upstanding by the book guy had, you know, done something illicit and gotten his nephew out of trouble, like it would be bad for him. Yeah. And I think this is another like knowing moment of the film where it is, yes, yeah, cynically saying again, like this is what police do you know like they protect themselves you know again for me that's like total noir territory it's just that like you know the world is a sinister place the world is a violent place and it's full of people doing horrible things and the good seem to be punished more than the bad and the bad seem to often escape you know yeah and ultimately even though his boss promises him his job back uh, his role as uh, lawman in this town uh, is going to continue because as he's trying to leave, he goes to say goodbye to uh, the Oracle. As yeah. yeah, the Oracle. <laughs> yeah, he's heading back to Copenhagen. Yeah, he did it. He he survived his time in this town. And it is when you're watching the movie, like this moment of being like, wow, man, he really did just come in here, fuck shit up. And now he's getting out. He's saying goodbye. He's packed his bags. He's off to Copenhagen. 
And the three are there playing cards, and they say, why don't you have a seat and play some cards with us, man? You're not going anywhere. It felt like a short story to me, a short story ending. And the fi- so I did see that the film was based off of a novel, but it, the film sort of feels like it could have been like a classic noir short story in a way where it all comes back to, you know, you think there's all these twists and turns and all these people are pulling the strings, but you could also read the entire thing as just this elaborate ruse of these members of the town looking for a new new person to join their card game yep. you know you think it's it, you think it's about people controlling the cleanliness of their town you know about seeming respectable and keeping everything on the straight and narrow but in reality the the, the the big the cosmic joke of it all was they just wanted a fourth card player and this was the only way they could think to get them locked in yeah. Dude, look i've been there trying to get a game together can be tough sometimes you can't always <laughs> find uh as many as many you know reliable card players as you want and sometimes you're scrambling you yeah. get desperate especially in a far out you know berg like uh Skiriold or whatever you know yeah. it's called and and that's it <laughs> i mean that's exactly how i read it ryan you know and they they tell him look we know everything we we helped clean it up we helped to make sure that you wouldn't get caught but if you leave if you ever leave all of that's going to come out and you're going to be busted you know you will go to jail for this you will go to prison so all you got to do to avoid that is just complete the game here. Just sit down and just fucking play cards with us, man, and everything will be fine, you know? Look, the balance has been restored. We have our fourth. This is your life now with us. And there he is now terribly, terribly <laughs> happy in, in yeah. scary damn. Yeah. Damned <laughs> to, uh, damned to hell. The dedicated town marshal. One, one thing I, I noticed reading about the film is the, the novelist and the director were both from this particular region. So I'm sure there's also like uh. a lot of stuff we don't pick up on in terms of what they're satirizing or, or caricaturizing in terms yeah. of like, yeah, we're both from this area. So like you, there's obviously a personal element to yes, adapting a, a work from your fellow felt not just countrymen, but yeah, you know, your your bro from the farmlands or yeah. whatever the bog. Uh, again, for me when you gave us the prompt, you know, and thinking of like country noir and thinking of the differences between the city and the small town, it's like the oppression of the city is different than the oppression of the small town. You know, they're, they're two different forces weighing heavily on people. You know, in the city, it's that everything's moving a mile a minute. You could drop dead in the street and no one would notice. And the small town, again, it's that pick your nose and everyone's calling you out on it. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, it was Ryan's topic this week. This was all your fault. All these descents into violence and madness in... And horniness. And horniness in the great (laughs) world of noir. Uh, So what comes to mind for you when you think about rural or country noirs? We had brought up so many of my favorites on the episode, which was funny. I mean, it's it's a rich genre, and it's a or it's a rich subgenre of noir, right? The rural noir. You know, we talked about on dangerous ground, which I think is really remarkable because it's a noir set in the snow. You've got the the brightest things you can imagine, a, a, a genre traditionally associated with shadows and things lurking behind corners. And here you've got it set with just, yeah, bright snow, big, bright movie, but it is uh, 
unquestionably a noir. And I do think, though, you know, uh, as Andy, you mentioned that second to Eddie Moeller, we have our, our noir expert here, Marsh, and someone who's introduced me to a lot of noir, both in terms of crime fiction and cinema. But, you know, one one author that uh, has really struck a chord with me is someone we've talked about tonight, Jim Thompson. Specifically, uh, his his book, Pop 1280, is, is one of the nastiest and incredible um, crime fiction books I've ever read. And one of my favorite adaptations of the book ever would have to be Bertrand Tavernier's Coup de Torchon. Mm. But the book itself is is a very race-conscious book in the way it de- its depiction of America and the South and the oppressive nature of all of these sordid relationships and how it relates to the town and the black community in the town. Um, and so Bertrand very cleverly takes that and sort of turns it around and is biting the French and by setting it in French West Africa. Um, and he has sort of a colonial bent to the film, an anti-colonial tract uh, that he applies and enhances Pop 1280 with. So Coup de Torchon is a film I would highly recommend people check out. R.I.P. Tavernier, the legend. Yeah, you left us too soon. Yeah, so um, Marsh, I think you're up next, you know. What do you got? Well, this past week I watched a film for the first time called The Lake House from 2006. And... uh, Shout out to Steve McFarlane for getting me interested in this because he wrote a piece uh, on Mubi about it a while back, and I would encourage anyone to look it up. Uh, But the film is, uh, in its own way, a remake of Speed. It stars uh, Sandra Bullock and Keanu Reeves as uh, two lovers trapped in a sort of time loop situation. It's hard to explain uh, and kind of beside the point. But I, I quite enjoyed the film, and one of the core aspects of the film is the architecture of Chicago and in the film Keanu and Christopher Plummer play architects and it reminded me that a while ago when I was brainstorming gauntlet topics I had thought about one that I wanted to bring eventually and this uh, spurred me to do it so the topic for next week is the best laid plans bring me films about or surrounding architects and whatever that <laughs> entails okay <laughs> as always you can follow us on twitter at gauntlet movies or send us an email at gauntlet at gmail.com moin Again This couldn't happen Again This is that once In a lifetime This is the thrill Divine And what's more This never happened before Though I have prayed for a lifetime That such as you Would suddenly be mine Mine to hold As I'm holding you now 
and yet never so near. Mine to have and the now and the here. <laughs> Ha, 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 ha,